created live on Fireside. Good afternoon, everybody. It is Wednesday at 12 o'clock, and this is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you are new to Fireside, uh, welcome. If you are returning to Fireside, welcome back. Uh, this is a space where every week we are together and we are here talking about issues in higher education. Uh, if you have suggestions for the show, uh, later on in the show, you'll have ways to contact me and get me your information and what you are looking for us to cover. Today, we have a really important topic. According to a study from Penn State University, over half of the people who have contracted COVID-19 will suffer from long COVID. Symptoms include fatigue, neurological issues, lung abnormalities, and what some are calling foggy COVID brain. Recently, a workbook of recommendations for serving these students has been published by advocates who work with disability services. The workbook aims to provide guidance to disability services and health professionals on serving this population. Today, I am joined by Dr. Lori Wolf from Boston University and Beth Graham Petro from uh, Olin College of Engineering in Needham, Massachusetts. Uh, Dr. Wolf has been at Boston University for 25 years and currently serves as the university's Director of Disability and Access Services and 504 Coordinator. She also holds faculty appointments in psychiatry at the School of Medicine and Rehabilitation Sciences at Sargent College. Lori earned her degree uh, from Hampshire College, uh, and the Founders class, I need to know more about that, Lori, and New York University and holds a doctoral, uh, doctorate in clinical and experimental neuropsychology from the City University of New York. Dr. Wolf has over 40 years of experience working with children, adolescents, and adults with disabilities. She has taught at the undergraduate and graduate levels and is a sought after speaker on the topic of autism and other hidden disabilities. She has edited and authored four books on brain mechanism in adult ADHD, 
learning disorders, and autism in college students. Dr. Wolf's interests include neuropsychology of self-regulation and brain models of risk-taking behavior. Lori's extracurricular activities include adventure travel, scuba diving, and her dogs. Welcome, Lori. You can take yourself off mute and say hello. We're going to wait a second, and then we're going to get Lori off mute. Uh, Beth Graham Petro is the director of Olin College of uh, sorry, Wellness at Olin College of Engineering in Needham, Massachusetts. Uh, Beth takes pride in supporting students by providing them with information to make informed decisions and other personal wellness. She enjoys building relationships with students, staff, and faculty, promoting wellness as a key component of student success. Beth has worked in higher education since 2003, uh, and she spent two years in residence life at Virginia Tech, held college health uh, positions at Boston University, Boston Conservatory, and Mount Ida College, where she and I worked together uh, at both Boston University and Mount Ida. Uh, where she's not, uh, when she's not working, Beth enjoys spending time with her family, reading, listening to podcasts, um, and catching up on our favorite TV shows. She's also the co-host of Twin XL Pod with me, which broadcasts on the Pod 617 network. And she is a returning guest here to uh, Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Lori and Beth, welcome. Uh, Lori, I see yourself soft mute. Say hi. I'm doing well. I need you to get a little closer to microphone and we will be good. And then Beth, say hi. Hello, it's great to be here. Excellent, nice to have you guys here. Uh, for those of you who are new to Fireside uh, I, or uh, need a reminder, please remember uh, you can go to the uh, hamburger in the bottom left-hand corner and you can click on broadcast to the world. When you hit that globe, which is broadcast to the world that gives you a link, you can then use that link to share it to your social media platforms a great way to share the share the news. The other thing you can do while you are here in the show is if you have a question for Dr. Wolf, for Lori, or for uh, Beth, please uh, hit a request to come on up on stage and ask your question. Uh, throughout the show, the ham the uh, the uh, scroll across the center of your screen may change. That's me activating that, giving you different links and different new information. Um, so I want to welcome Beth back and Lori, welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Uh, Lori, as you haven't been a guest on the show, I'm going to ask you uh, to give us an idea of what COVID has done to impact the area of disability services, especially in the remote and hybrid world uh, that you were experiencing and how you've learned about your work, uh, or actually what you've learned more about uh, your work with students with disabilities during that time. So go ahead and, and give us your thoughts on that. Great, thank you. You know, when um, the uh, the pandemic started, we sort of knew that things were going to change. We had, as did many people in the world, uh, a week to migrate thousands of classes, about 2,500 students with disabilities, thousands of faculty to a remote environment. And I remember the very first Zoom trainings were pandemic. I mean, you know, they were... Um, uh, people didn't know what buttons to, to click. Some people were screaming, you're going too fast. Others were saying, you know, uh, go faster. And, you know, everybody learned to work remotely. It was really remarkable. And in our office, once we got the word that we would would, uh, would be leaving, literally, uh, we had a week. It wound up being less than a week. We grouped together and used all of our resources, which we already had, for delivering accommodations remotely. You know, mm -hmm. we have a pretty big education program here at BU. 
My office covers global education. So we were already pretty nimble at putting accommodations in remote space. We knew the right things to do. We knew the right people to call. Uh, and we all pulled together to make that happen. So I, I, I think, you know, we leveraged our expertise and, and made it accessible. And, you right. know, there were problems that came up throughout that 18 months, um, which, which we, we dealt with. I thought that that was the hardest thing we were going to be asked to do. But frankly, reopening campus and coming back has been harder. Talk to us more about that. Why has it been harder to come back? I think we're living in an environment where we've taught ourselves to be afraid of everything. Mm. So, you know, students are on edge. Students who had psychiatric and psychological uh, disabilities pre-pandemic often had worsening symptoms during pandemic. Students who didn't have issues before they, they went into lockdown came back with issues. So we're seeing a lot more students. We're seeing students who are very much on edge and frankly, students who got used to having their parents back in their lives. Mm, mm, so, you know, every uh, elevated student that we have and, and usually an equally elevated parent. So, right. you know, we're, we're kind of doing a twofer um, and, and just trying to get people to talk to each other, to relate to each other, to you know, want to work out a roommate uh, issue rather than insisting that, you know, that, that, that they be moved to a different room has been harder than ever before. And mm -hmm. I, I, I worry that uh, the gains that, that many young people uh, made when they came to college, they lost when they went back home. And I don't know how long it's going to take. And, and frankly, it's not just the students. It's also faculty and staff and their parents. It's, it's the world. Mm -hmm. I appreciate what you're saying there because, you know, I think uh, and I'm going to bump it over to Beth in a second is that one of the things I know from my past experience working on college campuses uh, for the last five years that I was actually a vice president for student affairs, the number one reason that students sought disability services as well as counseling services on campus was anxiety. Um, and so I can only imagine that now we've got this heightened situation on our campuses where we already had an anxious population. And um, they're, as you said, feeling more anxious because of what's happening around them and what they're experiencing. And that idea of that their parents have been taking care of a lot more in their lives than maybe that they, they were doing uh, previously. Beth, are you seeing some of the same things? What do you thought about uh, what Lori said uh, in terms of her comments? I agree wholeheartedly with Lori's assessment about um, the level of fear. Uh, I think that it's understandable, but it has definitely made the return to campus um, in person in a lot of ways more difficult or, or difficult in a very different way mm -hmm. um, than, than handling things remotely. And I, I think, and when I know we will talk about this more later, I'm sure, remote education was not ideal for a lot of students for a lot of reasons and mm -hmm. particularly those who were already struggling with different mental health challenges um the isolation the loneliness that all got worse mm -hmm. for a lot of mm -hmm. people um but the return has been uniquely challenging because and, and i come from you know i'm working on a very in a small campus community um but i i can i think this is probably playing out on many campuses that the level to which people feel comfortable being back on campus is very varied. Mm -hmm. um, the understanding of what the goal of being back on campus is, is not a universal understanding. Mm. Um, 
and certainly the understanding of what the goal of COVID prevention strategies on campus, like people definitely do not have a universal understanding of what those are Mm -hmm. for. And so I think um, this dovetails a lot with, as you said, that there's a lot of students who have accommodations um, around anxiety. And I think that that really uh, plays out in an interesting way when we're talking about this return to campus and how for some students it's a it's been a boon to their well-being. They're they're doing better. They're feeling better. They like being back on campus. And some that really you know they may be happy about it in the abstract, but the management of like you know I feel like it's still March 2020 mm-hmm. mentally and emotionally. I'm trying to avoid this at all costs. I'm trying to like and trying to make the shift into a new reality of, okay, now, you know, if a lot of people on your campus are vaccinated and a lot of, you know, there's, there's sort of different risk levels, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but it's hard to make that emotional and mental shift into what those new risk levels are and what they mean for day-to-day life. And I think that that's challenging for everyone. And certainly if a student is managing significant anxiety, then that's even harder. Mm-hmm. Now, I it, I think you both have brought up some really good points. And I think that it, for higher education professionals, as well as any parents who might be listening to this, I think it's important for us to kind of keep things in perspective is that, you know, last week, I had an opportunity to speak to special education folks uh, in Massachusetts who are uh, K-12. So a community of the of those of those uh, teachers and, and educators. And what I said to them was when we went into lockdown in March 2020, it was an immediate lockdown. Um, And then instead of kind of having a throttle and coming on gradually, we didn't get to come on gradually. We got it, it was like someone hit a switch instead of had a had a throttle that kind of gave us an opportunity to lean in. And that's that's something I think that that hasn't helped anyone's mental health in all of this, whether it be the student or the professionals trying to assist them. Um, you know, Beth, can you give us uh, there's the can you help us in, by defining long COVID? You you're the 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 health center, the former health center uh, director. Uh, you've got the the medical. Uh, you've been working closely with other uh, health and wellness centers uh, directors on campuses across the country. You get, I'm sure, daily emails about uh, what's happening. Uh, how are people defining long COVID and what has been shared in the student health field in this area? And then I'm going to have the next question for Lori. So long COVID um, is defined as symptoms that persist for more than four weeks after diagnosis. And there's a lot of this online about what the common symptoms are. Um, Like I know, for example, the Mayo Clinic has about a dozen symptoms Mm -hmm. that they list on their website, Um, usually includes chest pain, cough, depression or anxiety, uh, dizziness upon standing, uh, fast heartbeat, fever, joint pain, um, the loss of smell or taste, memory issues, concentration issues, sleep problems, shortness of breath, um, and symptoms getting worse after activities, either physical or mental. Mm-hmm. Um, and the estimates range from anywhere from a third to a half uh, to half of people who have COVID will have some long-term symptoms. And even in that group, there is some variation. There are some people that have it longer than the four weeks, so they meet the definition of long COVID, but it does resolve after a few okay. months. Um, and then there are some that it that it seems to be chronic, and you know it's been six, eight, 
12 months and, and those symptoms still persist. What's interesting is that um, in preparation for this conversation today, I actually went back through the um, communications coming out of the CDC and also the uh, American College Health Association to see like, what have we been saying about long COVID? And the answer is not much mm-hmm. um, in terms of college students. Uh, ACHA, the American College Health Association, has done a lot to assist practitioners on campus with the return to campus. Um, And there is a lot of attention paid to so many things like the need for mental health services, how to run your campus clinic safely in this time, how to what kind of surveillance testing you should be implementing, vaccine mandates. Like if you can think of it, it's mm-hmm. in there, yeah. except for the notion except for of long COVID. students with long COVID, which yeah. it seems to keep falling. Like when I was doing research, it seems to keep falling into the accessibility and disability space and not the health services space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that anecdotally, if you were to speak to anyone in college health services, they would say to you, yes, we're seeing this. Yes, we have some capacity to care for these students, or we may be doing, because the other thing to remember about a college health center is depending on the campus, there, there are some campuses that are really, the health center is quite, is like a comprehensive service that really can stand in for primary care. And that often happens on a really large campus where you have a range of people like into like graduate and PhD students mm-hmm. who might have families and, you know, like I'm thinking of my own experience as a grad student at UMass Amherst, like that's a small urgent care clinic slash, you know, there's, there's everything there and people are bringing their whole family mm-hmm. versus on a smaller campus. It's meant to be for the most part, like short-term episodic care, some preventive care, but there is a lot of referring out into the community for chronic care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we'll see happen um, at some schools that simply don't have the capacity. If someone, for example, needs like a long-term uh, relationship with a neurologist because mm-hmm. of their long COVID symptoms. That's something where a college clinic may be referring them out to someone in the local community. But I do think in the the reporting thus far and the small amount of communications I've seen, it really seems to be being pushed toward the accessibility and disability space. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And I'm going to bump it over to Lori. But before I do that, speaking of accessibility, one of the things that's a nice feature of Fireside, if you would benefit from uh, live live, live closed captioning. If you go to the hamburger and you hit transcript, you will have the opportunity to turn on closed captioning, uh, which happens throughout, or you can uh, look at the transcript later if you want to catch up. Um, So Lori, I want to talk about, uh, you brought it up earlier about how people are engaging, how parents are more engaged uh, maybe before. So I am going to specifically ask this question uh, around uh, how students should be di- should be engaging with disability services, but also how parents. So, how do parents and families need to look to work with their children during these times? You know, one of the things that Beth brought up is that we don't have a firm understanding of what exactly long COVID is from a health from the health center perspective. Um, I am quite interested in this, in that I'm hearing from even from friends who sent their children off to school last fall. Um, and came up, came home uh, with COVID and have been suffering with long COVID um, uh, symptoms. And they've never needed uh, to engage with a disability services office or receive accommodations in the past. So now they're in a completely foreign environment. 
Uh, so talk to us about what how parents and families need to work with their children during these times. And what are some uh, tips that you would give in this particular situation for, for the families? And then we'll get to the, the campus. Sure. You know, um, previously, you know, BC before COVID, um, disability offices were, you know, pretty uniform in saying that students have to advocate for themselves. They're adults. They need to manage their 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 own stuff on campus, and 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 we would not engage with parents. Some campuses interpret the, that differently. Our interpretation at BU is that we would only talk to a parent if a student were also present about anything substantive. Although parents could certainly feed us information, we wouldn't engage in a in, in a dialogue. COVID changed that because every meeting we had with a kid, the student might be sitting on their childhood bed. And the parent was either next to them or lurking in the background. And you could always mm. Zoom. If the student was looking off to the side, we'd say, you know what, why don't you just invite your mom in? Because we know she's, she's there. So right. Invited that. And it's going to be hard to get back to a position where now we're going to exclude it. So, you know, I work with a lot of autistic students. And we often have a phrase that we say to, you know, to move them out, you have to bring them in. You have to, mm. the parent has to know that they can trust you that you understand their student, you're gonna take care of their student, and then you can ease them out by reminding them that we have this, the, the, the same goal of you know, a, a, uh, an educated, employable adult at the, end, at the end of the path. So we're finding that we are talking to parents more than we ever thought we would. Um, we're trying to navigate that in a way that also um, honors the student's voice and makes them aware of the fact that they're really in the driver's seat, even if their mom or dad is involved in the process. So we've gotten a lot more flexible, I think as a campus, but particularly in, in our office um, and, and trying to hold that line, but also understand that parents were, you know, had a front row seat to a very difficult mm. pandemic year for, their, for their, their youngsters. I know I had my own, you know, uh, students who launched, you know, offspring who launched and then came back mm. and locked mm. down with us. And I saw the impact on them. So I, I, I understand the, the parents, you know, fear in sending someone to live in a congested di uh, residence hall to dine communal communally to share bathrooms. I I, I understand that, um, but I also know that for the students' benefit, they have to move beyond that and and get back to being their own advocates. Mm. And that's really good a point, Lori. And I want to you know that's something that I'm seeing with uh, you know people just humanity, right? Is this idea of we need to be able to uh, speak for ourselves, be able to speak about what we're anxious about. Um, you know, we're coming up on a holiday and families uh, may not be ready to come together again because of mixed, mixed feelings about uh, vaccinations and masking and things of that nature. So we're all navigating this in, in some way. Um, and so I think your points are really important. I want to also ask a follow-up question. One of the difficulties that I always had uh, when working with disability and accessibility services were faculty. Um, and faculty, I love faculty. This is not an anti-faculty uh, comment, 
But some of the times what would happen is a student would come in and say, I need an accommodation, whether, you know, they were actually documented or not, they would speak specifically to the, the faculty member and circumvent the disability services office or not go through the proper channels. Are you finding that uh, faculty are bringing uh, student concerns to your, to your desk more often now because of COVID? Uh, are people asking more questions from the faculty side? Uh, what do you see going on there? We're definitely seeing more questions and having more contact. As part of our pivot to remote, um, we prepared a faculty guide to delivering accommodations remotely. Mm. And uh, we, we distributed that widely. We did a lot of conversations with faculty. So we reached out at that time and they continue to reach out to us um, asking, is this student registered with you? What do you suggest I do? Faculty were also asked by the administration to be flexible during the remote mm. learning period. And to, you know, to, to really try to be responsive to student requests, not put them through the, 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 the ringer of going through all the administrative channels. So I think that a lot of faculty were already accustomed to that. And I'm seeing more flexibility from professors. And, you know, we have to find whatever silver linings there, there were in this. Flexibility, increased sensitivity to access, um, willingness to, you know, to look at different ways of achieving the same the same goal is 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 a benefit, and if mm. faculty continue to, to 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 have that that that's that's wonderful. That's great, um, Beth. I want to ask you a question as a follow up to that. I know in your campus it's a very small campus, whereas Lori's at a, at a pretty monumentally big campus. Um, do you think that there's a heightened sense of uh, concern or people kind of cluing in that? that folks are, are struggling with uh, maybe their own health in different ways. Are, are people more involved? I know on small campuses, uh, one of the things we tout is this high touch environment on a small campus. Do you think that that's been hurtful in some ways uh, in terms of people's ability to kind of advocate for themselves? Or do you think that it's actually uh, empowered people to say, look, I saw my friend, they advocated for themselves and I think I can do this. Oh, what a wonderful, complicated question. <laughs> um, I think it's both. I mean, I think I think that there are certainly students. I, I let me back up and be a little bit more general to start. Hmm. I think that a lot of people, not just students, are really, really struggling. Hmm. I think that we are certainly seeing that. I think a lot of campuses are seeing that. There's, if I had a dollar for every story in the media right now about mental health crisis on campus right now. Um, I'd have quite a few. And I agree, like what Lori said is all true and, and was true at our at my institution too. There was a, an expectation that the faculty would be more flexible, that there would be some sort of flexibility and empathy and grace extended to people about a lot of things. Um, and that is great and is as it should be. I think that um, for some students that works really well um, they are able, even though they may be struggling, even though this is certainly a strange semester and, and not easy, that works for them. They're able to just kind of utilize that extra bit of flexibility and, and do what they need to do. I think that others um, still find it really difficult to self-advocate um, and are in a place where 
uh, how to explain this. I think there's a small percentage, and this is also probably true on most campuses, that are really, really struggling and probably would be well served by a leave of absence or some other break from the institution, but they are still there for, for reasons, and that's fine. Um, but they're even at the point of like, even just the start, even the step of like, uh, hello, Dr. DeVoe, I need an extension on this paper. Mm-hmm is too much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a really, that's a tension for faculty and other folks, because it's like, we do like, as Lori was describing, you want to create a situation where people can, can access that flexibility and accommodation as easily as possible. But I think for some, the the problem is, is so stark right now that they can't even ask. Mm -hmm. And, and faculty are understandably like, well, how do I, how do I know if I don't know? Right, um, right. And it's, and it's tricky. Um, so I think for some, it has created a situation where they're like, oh, the college is saying, stay home if I'm sick. The college is saying, ask for help. I will do that. I feel comfortable doing that. Um, for others, they are just in a really, they're in a really rough place and it's even harder to ask for those things than it normally would be. Good point. Um, and I, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, one of the things that we continue to have to do is give grace and lead with grace and, and act with grace. And so I appreciate both of your comments. I want to turn our attention uh, to, in a second to a workbook that has been prepared. Um, and we're going to talk specifically about that. But I want to just remind people you are here with Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. I'm Dr. Laura DeVoe. I am your host. Uh, we come here, uh, we come together uh, every week uh, to discuss uh, issues around higher education. I want to take a minute to uh, preview some of our uh, shows coming up in the next couple weeks. Uh, they are not going to be on our usual day of Wednesday due to uh, some scheduling issues and the holiday. So the next uh, show will be on Friday, November the 19th, and we are going to be talking about how press covers higher education. Chris Quintana, who is with the USA Today, he is their higher education uh, writer. Uh, he is going to be here uh, to talk about how mainstream news media typically focuses on human interest stories and headline-worthy trends, but not really real news. Uh, you know, Beth was just talking about, you know, we're going to cover the, the flashy stuff. We're going to cover the mental health. We're going to cover some things, but we're not actually digging in deep. So we're going to really talk about what that means. And uh, Chris Quintana is going to be here to talk about uh, higher ed coverage in the news. Um, on Tuesday, November the 23rd, which is uh, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we are going to be talking about food insecurity. Um, according to Hunger on Campus, 50% of community college students and 47% of four-year college students report food insecurity. We are going to spend time uh, during that show with two leaders um, in uh, dealing with food insecurity on their campuses, uh, where we uh, are seeing an increase uh, right now uh, with uh, even more students reporting food insecurity, as well as fuel and housing insecurity. So we'll be talking about those uh, those uh, issues on uh, November 23rd. So follow me here on Fireside and you'll get information on when those shows are being held. You can RSVP and you can uh, then get a reminder right before the show starts, as well as have it 
just get fed right into your calendar so you don't miss it. Okay, so moving back to the workbook. Um, so recently a workbook's been prepared. Um, you know, uh, I've put a link to an article from uh, Inside Higher Education in the in the uh, in the feed here. Um, and the workbook was was created by about thirty some odd uh, higher education disability services professionals. Um, it's a uh, just under 60 pages long. There's a lot of information in here. Um, and it's really kind of built to be this environment where people who work with uh, disability services can actually uh, kind of uh, frame the services that they're providing to students around long COVID. Um, I asked both Beth and, and Lori to take a look at, at the news and at the book, and, and I'd like their thoughts on this. Um, and uh, I have some thoughts as well. Uh, I'd like to hear from uh, Lori to start and then we'll bump it over to Beth, is what are your thoughts on the recommendations on the workbook and what do you think is notable in here and where are we continuing potentially to fall short? So Lori, I wanna start with you. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I, I was actually um, invited to participate in this panel. Most of the uh, senior people in disability services nationwide were contacted. The facilitator, Janie Jairo, is a, is a friend of mine. So, you know, I, I, I saw drafts of this and I think, you know, it is a wonderful manual for good disability services for any condition. So the, in, the, the, the depth of the interview, the emphasis on looking beyond academics to see how is a person coping in their residence hall in their social life, what changes have they noticed since, you know, uh, uh, the onset of the COVID. This is kind of, you know, excellent disability services interviewing. And uh, so I, I think on, on, on that level, it's it's fantastic and should should have legs. And Janie does these things for free. She doesn't, yeah. you know, she's paid for this. Um, we had already been doing this. Our interviews are already extensive. We had to mm -hmm. add to it that, you know, uh, an awareness that long COVID is a thing. We were seeing students with short COVID and mostly talking about how to deliver accommodations if they were in isolation or quarantine and, you know, uh, what sort of arrangements we needed to make. But we've seen a handful. I can't say we've seen a lot of students. We already have a lot of students who have vague cognitive and attention complaints. Brain fog is, you know, nonspecific to you know, many, many, many medical and psychiatric conditions. So we already uh, have accommodations and understand how to support a student who has those symptoms. But what's new for us is attributing it to COVID mm. instead of an autoimmune disorder or, you know, a, a traumatic brain injury. But, you know, the, the, the accommodation recommendations are pretty standard. Modifications of, attention, uh, of attendance, um, extensions, breaks, note-taking some students are asking for an option for remote learning mm -hmm. and that is mm -hmm. difficult in, in many circumstances and is on and on many campuses but we sort of you know um have added covid to our list of the medical conditions that are are common in our office and have been increasing in our office anyway mm -hmm. um, but i can't think i've seen a lot of students who we didn't already know coming in and saying i have covid because i'm not sure that the medical community has quite caught up to that yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I, I want to ask a follow-up with, with Beth. And uh, Lori, thank you for your participation in this. And, and yes, the, the, the 
book itself actually clearly has uh, a great deal of feedback from all kinds of institutions. And you may have some insight in this, Lori, but I want to ask Beth uh, this follow-up question. Beth's worked on small campuses. Sometimes one of the things that I find uh, having worked at both large, mid-size, and small campuses is that when recommendations come down the pike, uh, they're really through the filter of a large campus or a large four-year campus. Community colleges kind of get the short shrift. Small campuses are scrambling. Uh, Lori, uh, Beth, when you took a look at this, was there anything where you said, well, that's going to be tough for a small campus or, uh, you know, going to what Lori said, these seem to be pretty standard uh, ways of engaging in, in good disability services. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on this through the lens of a small campus administrator. I think it's kind of, it's going to be both again. I mean, I think that Lori's correct. A lot of this is just the way that hopefully people are doing it anyway, or, mm -hmm. or a lot of it is. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that um, it's tricky on a small campus when I know the one I work on now and another one where I've worked where I was doing the accommodation stuff as a portion of my job, mm -hmm. that's where this gets really tricky. That um, there is not always the best capacity for these things. Um, I think that especially, you know, there's this idea, um, there's this idea in here about intake interviews, mm -hmm. which absolutely yes. But I think about my one colleague who a part of her job is accessibility. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh-oh, <laughs> right. like, how much time is she really going to have to do all that? And mm -hmm. she will try. Um, boy, will she try. So I do think it's tricky um, that the other problem that comes up, and this is not unique to small campuses, but it certainly is happening on a lot of campuses, is that the pandemic uh, represented a financial blow to a lot of campuses. And mm -hmm. there have been a lot of staff reductions and mm -hmm. a lot of places just have fewer resources in terms of people to handle these things. So yeah. we have a real, another tension of we are going to have students that have um, greater need that they're going to expect us to meet and we have fewer people to meet that need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a great resource. And I think that um, there are a lot of ways in which it can be um, useful that, you know, it's sort of encouraging folks not to, um, I don't want to say not as stringent because that's the wrong word, but I can't really think of a better one right now. Like it's, it's, it's acknowledging the notion that like someone may come to you with these symptoms and with these challenges and not be able to present documentation or a particular diagnosis the way they would have, as Lori said, like mm -hmm. if someone has an autoimmune diagnosis, they're going to come to you with a letter from their doctor. And in this case, they may not have that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So in some ways this is encouraging a slightly more, like a slightly looser way of doing this, mm -hmm. which could be good. Um, but it also just, it's going to, I think, encourage a lot more students who need the help to come looking for it, which is a good thing. I worry about the capacity of especially smaller schools to handle an influx of more people needing, needing this part of the accommodation. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I want to just talk, draw attention. Uh, the, the, while Jane Jarrow, who's the facilitator of this, uh, this effort, um, there's a lot of people uh, who also represent community colleges who were part of this conversation. Uh, there were state institutions, privates, et cetera. Um, so it's clear that there was an effort and to go out there and, and broad the, the reach. Lori, based on what uh, Beth just said about this idea of some of these campuses that might be small, that might be, you know, one of our past episodes here on Office Hours was uh, with a panel of people who have left the profession, who said, you know what, the, the some of them left because of the pandemic, some of them left prior to the pandemic, but their capacity of uh, what they were being asked to do on a daily basis uh, became pretty much like, you know what, this is not what I signed up for. This is way too much. Um, and so I'm wondering what your thoughts are about campuses that might be strapped either because of, frankly, they're small uh, or because uh, they're losing staff or don't have the capacity within the departments. And, and if you were directing uh, a colleague or you were consulting, what are some of the key components of this that you think are really important, regardless of the size of the campus that you just got to kind of spend the time on? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And it's one that I've confronted on a couple of fronts. You know, I, I said before, I do a lot of work in autism and I do a lot of uh, training on other campuses. And what we talk about is that most young adults with disabilities, particularly autism, don't disclose their disability. They're not known to disability services. They don't have an accommodation letter. So as a campus, what do you do when students don't disclose? Mm. Or in this situation, what do we do when we have more students than capacity can handle? And the strategies are to make the campus welcoming to everybody, to look at principles of universal instructional design so that faculty are teaching to a multitude of different abilities so that um, people are, are, are flexible, so that we're really looking at, at access so that anyone with or without a disability can have their needs addressed on some level. There are, of course, some accommodations that need to be official mm -hmm. and that you know, we, we, we need you know, not to, to you know, undermine or, or do away with offices like mine. But I think that most campuses can do a better job at you know, looking broadly and, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, Beth called it looser. And, and I understand that because it is a little bit looser. And, and you know, um, lots of, of, of schools are wedded to their bureaucracy. But when we look to broad access, we look at ways that we can be inclusive. And inclusive pedagogy is a huge impetus on most campuses right now. So we work disability pedagogy into that as well. And I think we reach a lot more people. Talk to me about how campuses are actually moving disability pedagogy into that inclusion pedagogy. How, how have you seen it do, do a good, uh, do, uh, how, how have you seen campuses move in that in a successful way? Um, well, my favorite example is here at Boston University. Our um, undergraduate Spanish uh, language faculty have taken an independent interest in teaching learners with learning disabilities who believe that they can't uh, acquire a second language, that they can't meet the Boston University language requirement for College of Arts and Sciences. So they looked uh, deeply, they did some independent research, they contacted a lot of experts in the field, and they've done a few very uh, well-regarded conferences bringing together those experts. They've adapted their classroom and their pedagogy so that they're using video they're using captioning, they're using image description. So they're using um, a variety of tools 
to teach students. If a student says, well, you know, I'm having trouble memorizing the vocabulary, they're finding different ways to support that with, you know, with memory aids um, rather than a traditional four skills foreign language course. They're being very creative. And that's exactly what we talk about is when you give an exam, you give, you know, an option to write, an option to, to perform, an option to demonstrate your course mastery in lots of different ways. And mm -hmm. you also teach in lots of different ways so that you address the different learning needs of the whole class. And that really is the, the, the principle. We don't have a, a, a universal design initiative at BU. UConn has the best one. So I would mm -hmm. encourage people to go and look at UConn's website and the training that they're providing faculty in how to deliver uh, uh, a disability-inclusive pedagogy. That's great. And so uh, Lori has said about UConn, um, if I can find the link before the end of the show, I will put that up in the in the uh, fortune cookie uh, in terms of the scroll. So that's great. And I love a good shout out for institutions that are doing good work. Um, I also am very intrigued by this, Lori, because I think that, you know, as I as you said earlier, one of the things I've tried to do throughout the pandemic is find, you know, glimmers of this is good. This these are things that we should have been doing before. Um, and, you know, uh, Beth's aware of this because we, we work together on uh, at Mount Ida, but there were times where we would go to the faculty with our disability services director there and say, you know, there's ways for you to, to provide a multitude of opportunities for students to show mastery of the content of the class. And it was, there was a lot of pushback from uh, specific members of the faculty about that's extra work and that's not something that, that uh, you're telling me how to teach. And I think that this is actually good. I think that the opportunity that we have had over the last 19 months to be able to learn in environments that were not necessarily what we had kind of planned on um, has created a uh, hopefully uh, a space where people can be more nimble um, and uh, more energized around learning. Um, and uh, so that's good. And I think that actually benefits people beyond, uh, beyond this one sliver of the COVID pandemic. Um, Lori, uh, Beth, I want to switch our attention for a minute about impact on mental health. Um, I, uh, there's been a lot of discussion right now on how students are feeling this pressure. PBS just dedicated 15 minutes in their news hour to, show, to a show on mental health on campus. University of North Carolina has made news canceling classes to have mental health days. Uh, while this may be not a, a long COVID related issue, or maybe it is, but we haven't defined it yet, um, it is a campus mental health issue. So uh, there are, uh, what are your thoughts on these days where campuses are saying, we're going to just shut things down, we're not gonna have class, or we are mandating, or we're telling the faculty, we don't want exams, or we don't want anything due during a certain period of time. What are your thoughts on those types of uh, very outward activities and what could camp? What are you seeing that are some interesting uh, opportunities out there that your colleagues may be doing? I'm of two minds on those because I think that on the one hand they can be a really public statement to students and the campus community as well as the public about that a, that an institution is recognizing the struggle and understands the need for a break and understands, you know, what's going on. And that can be really important. Um, it can also just be nice to give students that space. 
Um, some campuses have had a day like that built into their semester for decades. I'm thinking specifically of like the, a lot of the women's colleges, like Smith and Mount Holyoke have had Mountain Day forever. I don't know when it started, <laughs> but it has been a tradition in the fall that like someone calls, you know, they pick a nice day and boom, it's Mountain Day. Surprise, you have the day off. And that's just been a thing they've done for a long time. And it's not necessarily been in response to a specific issue. It's just been built into their culture and their, and their plans. Um, I think the trouble is that often um, it looks and feels to some students like a Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not have a long-term impact. Um, and ironically, it is not usually a day off for staff and faculty and can often make them do more work. Mm. Um, if faculty are being asked to either remove something from their course or adjust their course in some way, um, especially if this is being done in reaction to something like I'm thinking of WPI, um, Mm -hmm. had Mm -hmm. a day like this a week or two ago in response to some things going on on their campus. Um, and I feel it, I'm, I think what they did was wise. I also think that, you know, there is more to be done. Um, and so these things can be helpful, but they are a very short-term thing. They are part of what a solution should be. Um, There's also a lot of struggle going on for the people on campuses that are handling the mental health issues of our Mm -hmm. students. Our clinicians on campuses are stretched extremely thin. Um, You were talking before about, you know, your conversations you've had with with folks who have left because it wasn't what they signed up for. This is not what the mental health clinicians on college campuses signed up for at all. Um, And I think that's a huge challenge for them. Um, I have seen some good things happening in terms of um, this is really pushing, I think more and more campuses to see how the focus of mental health services cannot be one-on-one counseling. Mm-hmm. on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pushing a lot more campuses to think more broadly about holistic solutions. There, I was actually just at a college health conference last week where there was a very big emphasis on connection-based programming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so programming that encourages students to connect with one another, to engage more with the campus community, to create deeper and more meaningful relationships with each other. Um, because the, the, word, the word of the day is loneliness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. interestingly, um, the National College Health Assessment is a survey that gets done every semester on many, many campuses across the country. It's administered by the American College Health Association. It's been in use for decades. Um, the data during the pandemic didn't really show a statistically significant change in loneliness, um, which was not what everyone thought it would get worse, right? And it mm-hmm. didn't, mm-hmm. at least in their data. Um, but I do think anecdotally, of course, um, we are hearing from students that this was something that was already going on. This is a generation of students that deals with a lot of loneliness. Um, and so I think there is a shift, a really sort of positive, encouraging shift toward trying to create opportunities for students to connect in more meaningful ways. And I think mm-hmm. back to, you know, I had colleagues at one of my former institutions that would talk about how the first year students in particular would would have what they called hot wired relationships yeah. where, you know, they'd meet at orientation and they'd be like, we both like the office and now we're best friends based on that. Um, 
and the same clothing type and that's what she said and so um yeah and then you know there wasn't really a lot of attention paid to making deeper relationships and and figuring out like who you want to hang out with and give your time to based on shared values Mm -hmm. and um and that's a good skill for life that i think more and more campuses are starting to emphasize that which is really good because connections to other people are preventive when it comes to things like suicide and Mm self-harm it sounds Mm -hmm. it sounds like hokey and silly but it's truly not like these are this is there's data to back that up that like if you have at least one or two significant relationships in your life your risk of suicide or self-harm is reduced and that is something that is obviously important to a lot of campuses because um that's something that's been important all along Um, And that's been very concerning for years. And I think even before the pandemic, we were seeing very high usage of campus mental health services um, and, you know, concerning rates of students reporting loneliness, reporting suicidal thoughts um, and and always depression and anxiety. And one thing that remains consistent is that they don't go to a professional first they go to their friends. Right. Right. And so doing more things like connection based programming and also um, offering things like gatekeeper trainings for suicide prevention and sort of peer helping trainings and, and opportunities are going to be things that are going to be helpful to Mm -hmm. campuses, both during this transition period, as we move through this phase of the pandemic and beyond. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate what you're, you're uh, looking at here. And as campuses need to be looking at their own culture, right? And that you can't just create uh, these kind of opportunities to build connections uh, in a false environment. You need to embrace the environment that you have. You need to understand how your students connect. You need to understand where they connect. You need to understand you know, some of those more superficial opportunities, but how do you heighten those to make them authentic? How do you heighten those to bring them together and have long lasting relationships? Uh, and, and that's where we need to be spending time. Um, and, um, you know, if, and going to Beth's point, um, there is a crisis of mental health across the country right now. We all know that. Um, but I mean, I was talking to a couple of vice presidents recently and vice chancellors, and they posted uh, counseling jobs on their campus that two, three years ago, you would be getting, you know, 50, 70, 90 applicants for, and they're barely getting a dozen. And that, that is frightening. Um, and they've had to really retool and decide how they want to move forward. And that's something we need to keep in mind. Lori, as we're kind of closing out today, I want to kind of, uh, I want to follow up on something you said earlier, and that is the way that disability services at, at your institution at Boston University, which is typical of institutions uh, across the country, and this is always something that's been hard for parents to understand, right? So in the K through 12 environment, they're very hands-on. They get to have uh, participate in the conversations around uh, the accommodation process and around around the services provided. When you move into the campus environment, into the college campus environment, it's different. It sits in the lap of the students to self-advocate. During the pandemic, you had to adjust either because the parents were sitting literally on the bed next to the student during the conversation or for whatever other reason. And now you have to kind of roll it back. 
What are some of the things that you're thinking about? You've been in this field for a long time. As you're thinking about how do you roll back in a successful way, what are some tips uh, that that you're uh, that you would like to get out there to other listeners? Um, and what are some of the things you're thinking about as far as how to operationalize this so that the students also don't feel like they're just getting shoved away um, and being put into a, a into a box where they they don't get to uh, have their parents there and they're they're getting cut off from that opportunity. It's very, it's it, it's tricky. And again, it's because we, we invited the parents in. We, on many campuses, um, were inviting parents in to assure them that remote education was working, their tuition dollars were well spent, that, you know, that all of the services were still, were still available. Mm. Uh, and now to renege on that is, is, is really what the family will perceive. It's saying, well, you know, now that you've, you, that you've got us, you're telling, you're telling us that you can't, we can't be involved. I think it, you know, um, it will likely, at least in our office, involve a certain degree of scaffolding mm. where, you know, we will make our joint goals clear. We'll clarify roles and responsibilities. Mom, you have a lot of things to tell me. I definitely want to hear your perspective. But first, I'm going to talk to your, your offspring and then, you know, uh, really modeling that interaction and, and, and letting everybody know that gradually we're going to be changing this because our shared goal is an employable adult. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to do that if, if mom and dad are behind the student with every decision that they make. And so, you know, gradually shaping that, whereas before I might have said to the parent, you know, you stay in the waiting room and I'll come get you if I need you. Now I might actually bring them in mm-hmm. and just build that trust that, you know, um, we've, we've, we've all been through this, this group experience that was horrendous for most people. And in recognition, I'm going to change how I interact with you. But mm-hmm. our, you know, our, our eventual goal is your student will be able to stand on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I appreciate your comment about having employable adults. You want people to, you know, I always used to joke, you want them to move out of the house. You want them to get out there and get their own thing going. And uh, it is important and we need to keep that in mind. We also have to keep in mind that, you know, wh- what our students are experiencing right now, shifting from the home environment back to campus, what's hap- what's going on, there is a lot happening that is uh, making them feel unsteady on their feet. Every, you know, especially last year, uh, students would would say out loud, last week it was one thing, this week it's a different thing. And you're, you're constantly in this kind of back forth, back forth. Um, for some students, that actually was good. It kind of kept them on their toes. But for other students, it was very, very disruptive. And uh, people just didn't feel like they had their their kind of uh, comeuppance in terms of their ability to to get their feet underneath them. Beth, you just came back from a conference. I want to follow up on that. Um, you know, tell me what the mood at the conference was. Tell me what people were kind of thinking about, what they were feeling, and did you talk about anything besides COVID? Oh yes. Um, the mood was partially sad that we were virtual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll just be real about that. That's um, and actually, yes, I mean, there was a good mix, I think, of there certainly is still a lot of conversation about COVID, but I think it's more about um, a little bit more retrospective, a little bit more talking about how people have handled things um, and looking toward um, a lot of a lot of emphasis on mental health and accessibility tons um mm-hmm. a lot of emphasis on supporting students in marginalized and minoritized identities um 
I think I can, <laughs> I'm going to share something funny because I think it talks a little bit. It's, it's a nice uh, summary of like what this conference was about and also where my head was at. I saw a session titled Stop the Bleed for the College Health Professional. And I thought, wow, this is like a session about how everyone is just really overextended. And like, we need to, you know, I just, I thought it was like a mental health of the provider situation. It was not, it was literally about stopping bleeding, like for clinicians. <laughs> it was like, what if you have someone come in with uncontrollable bleeding, what do you do? So there was that. So they were talking about that too. That's good. Like, I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're yeah. talking about uncontrollable bleeding. And so it's literal bleeding, out. not, not like the bleed generally, figuratively speaking, that we all may feel we're having <laughs> It's nice. It's nice that you're that that comfortable and you're able to say it's like this is where I was at mentally. Made for me, except it wasn't. But that's okay. Except it wasn't, and I stayed. And I went out and I went on Amazon and bought four tourniquets. Okay, uh, so as we are wrapping up, I want to remind folks that this is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We are here every week. I have just put up in the uh, fortune cookie my contact information. Um, I'm going to give both Beth and Lori an opportunity to sign out and say where they can find each other. I do want to remind you next Friday, we have Chris Quintana uh, uh, from the uh, USA Today, uh, who is going to be joining me to discuss how press covers higher education. And then the following Tuesday, the 23rd of November, uh, we are going to be talking about food insecurity. I hope you are able to join us. Lori, it was a pleasure to have you here. How do people find you? Can they find you on LinkedIn? What's your best place to find you? Uh, best place to find me is um, email and the, the Boston University website, which is bu.edu slash disability. I don't keep a big social media presence in terms of, of my professional contacts, but you can always find me at BU. That's fine. And Lori is fantastic. Uh, she's a former colleague, and um, I think that uh, some of her other colleagues are in the office with her right now. So thank you, Chris. Thank you all the people that were helping Lori today. And it was a pleasure to have you on the show. I really appreciate you uh, giving up a, a portion of your day. Beth, how do people connect with you? Uh, similar to Lori, I would say uh, either via Olin, olin.edu. You can find me in my email there. I am also on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, but I'm not really talking about work there. So no. <laughs> We're going to talk on Twitter later about the very important news that People Magazine has just announced that Paul Rudd is the sexiest man alive in 2021. Yeah. That's where I'm really discussing the, the issues that are extremely germane. It's, it's very important, <laughs> and I, I think it's long overdue. So we may have a whole separate session here on Fireside about why it's an injustice that Paul Rudd had wait this long. So Tackling the hard news. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you both and have a wonderful Thanksgiving and thank you everybody for being here uh, for uh, office hours with Dr. DeVoe. Um, it is uh, the evolution of professional development in higher education streaming live on Fireside. Had a great time, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.